already mentioned this earlier in the service, but the Fisher's Freedom Festival, I want to mention it one more time. We've mentioned it a few weeks in a row now, how we have three different shifts of people we're looking to volunteer to help run this kids game booth. We've talked about how it's this great ministry opportunity, how it's a great way to serve, great way to know people in our community, show them that our church cares about them. We've talked about all that. And our first and third shifts, the 9 to 11 shift and the 1 to 3 shift, are all pretty much taken care of. But there's that middle shift from 11 to 1 that is still empty. Now, there's a part of me that says I'm flattered that no one wants to volunteer for that shift because that's right during prime sermon time. So I understand if you don't want to volunteer, but let me word it to you this way. We are asking you to miss church. So if you could volunteer for that, that'd be great. I just wanted to reword it, help you understand the gravity of what we're saying. We are telling you, don't come here. It's not often that we're going to tell you that. So take advantage of that opportunity. Sign up for that second shift. We could really use volunteers. We would really, really appreciate it. Now, last week we talked about the third commandment. We're in a series on the Ten Commandments here at Prairie View Christian Church. And the third commandment is this one that most of us are familiar with, this idea of not taking the Lord's name in vain. We talked about how names matter to us as people. We spend weeks or months debating what we're going to name our kids when they're born. We make a big deal out of marriages because the wife typically gives up her last name to be united to her husband. We talked about how we love when businesses and restaurants remember our names. It makes us feel important. It makes us feel valuable because names matter to us. But we also talked about how names matter to God. God gave Adam this task of naming the animals. God would sometimes tell parents what to name their babies before they were even born. Sometimes God would come into people's lives later in life and he would change their names. Even after they'd gone by one name all those years before. Names matter to us and names matter to God. But we also talked about God's name itself. In the Old Testament, it was most commonly these four Hebrew consonants that we kind of loosely say were probably pronounced something like Yahweh. We read that in books. We hear it in songs because it sounds a little bit more spiritual. But here's the thing. Throughout much of their history... The Jewish people, God's people, they wouldn't dare pronounce that name because they thought it was so holy and so perfect and so righteous that they couldn't fathom their sinful lips having God's personal name come out of their mouth. And so they would see that name in their Old Testaments and they would say something else because they didn't feel they were worthy of uttering the personal name of God. They didn't want to take God's name in vain. They didn't want to use it in a way that was insincere, in a way that was frivolous, using it to tack on to some commitment they made and then not keeping that commitment and then being concerned that, well, we had God's name attached to this and we didn't keep our word. So what if we made God look bad? They didn't want to take that name in vain. But we also talked about the fact that taking the Lord's name in vain, that's not just limited to speech. That's not just limited to how we use our words. We talked about how our actions can be a way of taking the Lord's name in vain. Because our actions can say something about the God who saved us. We can bring honor to God's name through the way we live, or we can bring shame to God's name through the way we live. But unfortunately, every single one of us, whether it's through speech or whether it's through action, we're all guilty of taking God's name in vain from time to time. And the good news with that is that there's another name 
by which we're saved. And that name is Jesus. God's son was sent to die for us. His body was broken. His blood was shed. And we can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we honor God by proclaiming that name to anyone and everyone who will listen. Anyone and everyone who hasn't heard it. We shout that name from the rooftops. We shout the name of Jesus to honor the name of God. Proclaiming it because that is the mission that we have been given as followers of Jesus. Now that brings us to where we are today, picking up in the fourth commandment. This is one of those commandments. Some of them are more famous than others. There are a lot of commandments that people, whether they've been in the church for long, whether they know Christ or not, if you went up to a person on the street and said, name the Ten Commandments, there are a few that they could probably name. Pretty much everyone can probably name at least one. But this is one of those commandments that doesn't really quite get the same fame. This is one of those commandments that is probably pretty likely to be forgotten by most people. And this commandment has to do with the Sabbath. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. That's the passage we've been in for most of this series. We're going to continue in that passage as we move forward. We're going to be in verses 8 through 11 this morning. So if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of our Bibles. If you don't own one, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave. That's a free gift to you. We want you to leave with a copy of God's Word. But before we actually get into verses 8 through 11, let's pray together and then we'll dig into that passage. Father, we are grateful. We so often take it for granted that we can sit here and open your word, that we can talk about opening and following along and giving out Bibles to people who don't have them. We, we take your word for granted, but I pray that we won't do that anymore, that you will continually remind us of just how incredibly privileged and honored we are to open your word. And I pray that your word will speak to us this morning. I pray that it will do whatever it needs to do for us. Some of us may need encouragement. Some of us may need conviction. Some of us may need just education of what your word says. And God, I pray that your word will do that. We know it's powerful to do that. And I pray that as we talk about the Sabbath today, as we talk about rest, we will remember where our, S, where our rest ultimately is found. And that is found in your son, Jesus. So be with us this morning. I pray that what we say and what we do, the way we worship as we take communion, God, that it will be honoring and glorifying to you. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So as we read this commandment, we see it kind of broken up into three Chunks. The first chunk is just the simple explanation of what the commandment is, and that is keep the Sabbath. This commandment, like the other commandments we've looked at so far, and pretty much all of the Ten Commandments, it's pretty unequivocally clear. There's not a whole lot of gray area here. The Sabbath is called to be a part of God's people's identity. 
They are called to be marked by this. This is something that's going to be a core part of who they are and what they do and how they live. Their Saturdays are supposed to be different from all the other days of the week. The second part of the commandment, we see this specific look at, okay, well, what does this really look like? What are some more details of how we're supposed to practice this commandment as God's people? And it's simple. Don't do any work. In fact, not just you, you shouldn't be doing any work, but your sons, your daughters, your family, don't let them do work either. Don't let your servants do work. Don't let your animals do work. Even that sojourner who's wandering around, who's a foreigner, who isn't one of my people, they shouldn't do any work either. You shouldn't force them to do any work because this is a Sabbath day. And work is not something that you do on the Sabbath day as my people. This is just part of who you are from now on. And then we see the third part. And we see this motivation, this reason why God seems to think the seventh day of rest is so important. And that reason goes all the way back to creation itself. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We read in that passage, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So this Genesis account, it shows this practice or this thing of God forming and filling the earth. God speaks creation into being. There's nothing else around, and then God speaks and everything is made. Yet he does it in six days, and he rests on the seventh day. Now, why would God rest on the seventh day? I mean, he's God. He could have created everything in any time frame he wanted, any way he wanted. Why would he rest on the seventh day? It's not like he got tired. It's not like he ran out of energy. It's not like he got a little bit stressed out and just had to take some time away from creation after he was done. He's God. The issue is not being in need of rest. The issue is God wants to bask in the glory of what he has done. God wants to bask in the glory of everything that he has created. And thus, God makes it clear that, hey, I rested on the seventh day, so if you're my people, you're going to rest on the seventh day too. Not because you need to bask in the glory, not because you created this, but because you do need rest. I'm not limited by this idea of rest, is the idea that God seems to be getting at. I don't get tired, I don't run out of energy, but you will. And because I rested on the seventh day, You should rest on the seventh day, too. But here's the thing. Work is a good thing. Work can be a very God-honoring, healthy thing. It's something to do with our time. It's a way to contribute to our neighborhoods or our families or our society in general through hard work, through effort, through passionate things that we care about. God can absolutely be glorified through hard work in lots and lots and lots of different fields. The teacher, the doctor, the plumber, the garbage man, the daycare worker, you name it. Those people can glorify God through good, hard, honest work. But we as God's people, we have this knack for taking things that can be good and God-honoring and God-glorifying and sometimes make them into an idol. Work can sap us of energy. If we don't take any time to rest, if it's nothing more than toil and nothing more than hardship, 
Work can become an idol if we find our identity in our work instead of finding our identity in Christ. If our source of fulfillment, if our reason for existence is our work, our career, the thing that we're good at, that'll fall short. That thing is an idol if we find our identity in it instead of finding our identity in Christ. And work can be damaging. If we allow it to become that idol, it can hurt us. It can hurt the people around us. It can cause us to neglect the things that really matter, to neglect our friends, neglect our families. It can take a toll on marriages and take a toll on the relationships between parents and kids. Work is a good, God-honoring thing, but it can also become an idol. It can also become a thing that doesn't honor God, because we in our sin have a knack of doing that. Now, you know, a lot of sermons on the Sabbath, they pretty much go from this point and they focus on Christians keeping a Sabbath. And they say, all right, you need to keep a Sabbath because that way you won't get tired. That way your work won't become an idol. That way you won't neglect your family. So keep a Sabbath. Take time to rest. That's what the Sabbath is all about. Make sure you're doing that. Okay, we're good. And the Sabbath is about rest. And all those things are true. Rest is important. Rest is very healthy for Christians. We don't want your work to become an idol. We don't want you to neglect your families. All those things are absolutely true. But the Sabbath is about more than just rest. And it means more for us than just rest. We already talked about Genesis 2, 1 through 3, how God created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. But then look at Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and five. God's people are, again, as we've talked about, they're fresh out of Egypt. They've been freed from slavery. God miraculously delivered them. He called Moses to be the leader of these people, and they eventually convinced Pharaoh to let them out. God helps along the way with that by sending plagues and all kinds of crazy things happen. Pharaoh makes one last-ditch effort to bring them back to Egypt at the Red Sea, and God parts the Red Sea and his people are delivered and they're celebrating and they're happy. But then they realize, now, wait a minute, we're not slaves anymore, but now we're essentially refugees. We don't have anywhere to go. How are we going to take care of ourselves? How are we going to take care of our kids? And then God steps in. Exodus 16, 4 and 5. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So some people are saying, you know what, Moses? Great job getting us out of Egypt. That was some pretty impressive stuff back there. But you know what? If we're going to starve out here in the desert, I wish we would have just stayed there. Yeah, we were slaves. Yeah, we didn't have a ton of rights. Life wasn't great there, but at least we had some kind of shelter. At least we had some kind of food. We weren't in danger of dying, but what are we going to do now? God steps in and says, I'm going to provide food for you. It's going to be one day at a time. I'm going to provide bread for you, and you're going to go out, and you're going to collect enough bread for that day. That'll get you through the day, and then when you wake up tomorrow, there will be more bread there. So then you can go grab that bread. Now, the exception was on that sixth day. On that sixth day, when you go out, you're going to find two days worth of bread. So collect that two days worth of bread. Don't worry about collecting any bread on the seventh day, on Saturday. Just trust that I'm going to take care of you. This is how I'm going to do it. 
You just got to believe me. You just got to trust that my plan's going to work. There's an aspect of trust with the Sabbath. Many people in Scripture, many people in our everyday world right now, they understand that if you take a day off, that could be the difference between paying your bills or not paying your bills. That could be the difference between your kids eating or your kids not eating. And many people in Scripture found themselves in the same position. The Sabbath is not just about rest. There's an aspect of trust. Do we trust that we don't have to be working all the time, working ourselves to death in order to take care of ourselves? Or do we believe that we will put honest work in, we will put hard work in, and then God will provide? We don't have to kill ourselves for the sake of providing for ourselves because God will provide what really matters for us. There's an aspect of trust. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is the other big Old Testament passage where you see the Ten Commandments. In the Exodus 20 passage, you see the big reason for keeping the Sabbath is because God created in six days and he rested on the seventh. And I want you to do the same thing. I want you to work six and then rest on the seventh. But Deuteronomy chapter 5 actually includes an additional idea. And it's the idea of Sabbath, not just for rest, not just remembering that I created everything, but rest so that you might remember that you were once a slave. There's an aspect of Sabbath where we are called to worship and reflect on what God has done for us, how he has delivered us. He didn't deliver any of us from slavery in Egypt, but he has delivered us from slavery to sin. And a Sabbath idea is a time to remember that. To remember where we came from. Remember what God has done for us in his grace, even though we could never deserve it. We remember God's faithfulness. We remember God's mercy. We remember God's grace. And then finally, with the idea of Sabbath, it's not just about rest. It's not just about trust. It's not just about remembering where we came from. There's this continual theme through all of the Ten Commandments and really through all of the Old Testament law of being set apart. We've hit on it before. We're going to hit on it again. The idea of Sabbath, working these six days and resting the seventh day, that's going to make you stick out. The people are going to ask you, why are you so intent on keeping the Sabbath? We work. We work really hard, and yet you guys rest. What if you can't provide for yourselves? What if that day of rest makes the difference between eating or not eating? And the Israelites would say, well, the reason we rest is because God created. The reason we rest is because God redeemed us from Egypt. The reason that we rest is because God wants us to stick out. God wants us to be different. He wants you to ask these questions of us so that all the nations might know who he is. So the Sabbath is not just about rest. It's about way more than that. It's not about just getting tired. It's a reminder of who God is. It's a reminder of what he's done. And it's a way to set us apart from those people who don't know God, those people who are not part of God's people. But later in Scripture, once we get out of the Old Testament, the Sabbath becomes a little bit more foggy. The idea of what Sabbath means and what value it is and what role it plays in God's people's lives it gets a little bit more controversial. It even becomes a burden for people at times. Over time, there would be debates about the Sabbath. And, okay, well, 
if we need to keep the Sabbath and God says don't work, then what exactly constitutes work? How can we kind of set some barriers? How can we set some guidelines about what work is and what work isn't? If we have to walk this far to get something, does that count as work? Or should we say we only can walk this far? If we have to lift stuff, should we put a certain weight limit on how much we can lift before it then counts as work? How much can we get away with when it comes to work on the Sabbath day and still technically obey this commandment? There is confusion about what priority the Sabbath should have. What if you're sitting on a Sabbath and you see someone who's suffering? You see someone who's in pain. Do you go out and help them? Because if you help them, that could be classified as work. So do you let that person just lay out there and suffer? Do you let them lay out there and suffer and then say, all right, hey, look, I can't help you today. It's the Sabbath, but I promise I'll be back tomorrow and then I will help you. Then I can do whatever work I need to do to get you through this. But just hang in there until tomorrow. Should you break the Sabbath and help the person or should you just completely neglect the person for the sake of keeping the law? The whole idea is that many people began to miss the point of the Sabbath. They began to elevate it over other things that really mattered more to God. There are more than one passage in the Old Testament where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire people whose hearts are looking for me, not people who are just really good at keeping rituals and really good at following all the rules. There's more to me than that, and I desire more of you as my people than that. And the Sabbath becomes especially controversial in the ministry of Jesus himself. There are more than one instance where Jesus ends up doing something or saying something or teaching something or healing someone on a Sabbath day, and it causes a lot of problems. It ruffles people's feathers. Look at John chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. There's just one example of this. Jesus and his followers, they're walking around, and they see a guy who was blind from birth. He's never been able to see The disciples ask him a few questions. Jesus uses this opportunity as a teachable moment for his disciples and to show his glory to all the people around. And Jesus bends down. He makes mud. He rubs it on the guy's eyes. The guy goes and washes and the guy can see. Now, the people who are typically around this guy, the people who have grown really, really used to seeing him bag at the same place every day, The people who have seen him beg every single day ever since he was born, they've seen him wandering around, not being able to see every single day since he was born, they're going to take notice when this guy all of a sudden can see. The religious leaders hear about it. The guy is brought before the religious leaders, and we see their response to this issue in verse 14. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? This debate is continuing on. There are some Pharisees who say that, you know, Clearly, he's not from God if he broke the Sabbath. As clear as day in our Old Testament, you keep the Sabbath. You don't do any work. He bent over. He made mud. That counts as work. You can't be from God if you break the commandments. 
But then other Pharisees say, now, wait a minute, this guy passes the eye test. He wouldn't be able to do these things. He wouldn't be able to make this guy see in the first place if he wasn't from God. So there's this division. There's this debate. They're trying to figure out how they can reconcile these things. There's another example in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. And he says in verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, same idea. Heals a guy on the Sabbath. And Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was meant to be a gift of God's grace. But it had become a burdensome rule. It had become a source of debate. It had become a source of contention. And people began missing the forest because they were looking at the trees. They started and they forgot that idea of God desiring mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus shows them the error of their ways. So I guess the question is, ultimately, if we look at the Sabbath in the Old Testament and then we look at the Sabbath in the New Testament, what role does it play for our lives as followers of Christ right now? Not as Israelites being reintroduced to God or freed from Egypt, but what does it have to do with us? Now, there's definitely something to be said for rest. We do come back to rest. You can't talk about the Sabbath and not talk about rest. That's a huge part of it. Rest is a good and healthy and God-honoring thing for his people right now, today. That is a good thing if you can do that. But the truth is that after Jesus' resurrection, the Sabbath gets put on the back burner. It's not really that influential in the New Testament. Instead, the emphasis isn't placed on resting on Saturday. Instead, the emphasis is placed on worshiping on Sunday, worshiping on the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus was resurrected. So more than anything, if you want to have a Christian Sabbath, the best alternative would be Sunday. And it's not just a day of rest, it's a day of worship, a day of joy, a day of reflection, a day of remembering what God has done for us, of gathering together as a community of believers and taking communion and hearing God's word and praying together, doing all of these things. If you're looking for a Christian idea of Sabbath, that's pretty much your best option. But this Sunday, this Lord's Day, again, it's a day for us to show that we are set apart. It's a day for us to show that our day is dedicated to worship. It's a day for us to show those who live closest to us, who know us best, that God is important to us. That's why we go to church on Sunday. That's why we worship. That's why we're a part of a community of believers. But not only that, we look forward to a day when there is a permanent Sabbath, where that idea of worshiping together and rejoicing in God is something that doesn't just happen on Sunday. It doesn't just happen on the Lord's Day. It happens around the clock. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. John has this unexplainable vision, and he sees in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
We look forward to this day of being in God's presence. We anxiously anticipate this day where we can be in God's presence and we can worship and enjoy him around the clock. The Westminster Confession asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer in the Westminster Confession is to glorify and enjoy God forever. We look forward to that. We experience it now, but we also look forward to the day when we do it in his presence, where we do it permanently. And we can look forward to that because of what Christ has done for us. You know, every single one of us needs rest for one reason or another. Whether you've got a high-demand job, whether you've got family issues that just mentally and emotionally exhaust you, whether you've got things going on with your health that can just be incredibly stressful, all of us need rest for one reason or another. We live in a fast-paced world where rest is hard to come by. But the truth is that no matter how much time we get away, no matter how many vacations we take, no matter how many spiritual retreats we go on, no matter how well we balance our calendars, there's only one place where we find rest in eternity. And that place is in Christ. Last passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. We read there, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In the New Testament, the people of God, that's not referring to Abraham's offspring. That's not referring to some genetic nation. That's referring to people who have placed their faith in Christ. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Because of what Christ has done for us, we have rest that no one can take away from us. We have rest that is there no matter how busy we are with the responsibilities and the different directions our minds and our bodies are being pulled. No one can take that rest away from us. We have this work of fighting against sin and resisting sin, but we don't have to have this work of trying to be perfect and trying to earn God's approval and trying to do enough to somehow get in the right standing with him. We fight against sin. We do resist sin. And that is hard work, but we do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. We do it with the counsel of God's word, advising us and guiding us along the way. We do it with community of believers who are here to encourage us and build us up and push us on and even hold us accountable when those times come. But more than anything, we rest because the work that needed to be done to reconcile us to God, that's not our job. That work has been done. That work was done by Christ. It was done when his body was broken and his blood was shed. The work that makes us acceptable to God, that's not our job to do. That work has already been done. And because of that, we rest in Christ. Because that's the only place where we find rest in eternity. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we find rest in you. We don't find rest in our own efforts. We don't find rest in doing enough and then thinking that we're in good shape. We find rest in your son, Jesus. That's the only place we find rest. And God, that is a rest that we don't deserve. We didn't do anything to earn that rest. You don't owe it to us, and yet you offer it to us through Christ. God, I pray that those of us who know you already, those of us who are a part of your people, 
I pray that we'll be reminded of that, that we will never forget where our rest comes from. And God, I pray that those people here who don't know you, I pray that they will find rest in you. I pray that we will proclaim your name to anyone and everyone who will listen. That people will know where our rest is found. That they might see that and ask questions about how it is that we can have this rest in a world where everything is so busy and everything is so stressful. I pray that doors will be open, that we'll take advantage of opportunities to share that we rest in you. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.